This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Guru is the knowledge management solution that delivers the information you need when and where you need it. Guru lets your team capture information instantly wherever it surfaces. Slack, Gmail, Salesforce, Microsoft Outlook and Teams, and more without ever leaving their workflow. Visit getguru.com forward slash saster to get Guru for free. Up today, Upfront Ventures Managing Partner, Mark Suster. My presentation today is funding amidst coronavirus. Two months on, what should you know? So there's five topics I would like to cover. One is what the markets are telling us about the impact of coronavirus on our economy. The second thing I'd like to cover is what to look out for in terms of VC funding in the market. The third, what you can expect for SaaS businesses in the next year. Number four, what businesses will resonate with buyers and investors on a go forward basis? And I wanna finish the presentation with some silver linings so it's not all negativity. We woke up February, 2020 with a shock to the system and no idea what it would mean for our business. I just plotted a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. If you look on the left-hand side of the slide, uh, by December 12th, we started to see cases in Wuhan, China. In January 13th, the first cases were detected outside of China. And as you'll notice, all the way from middle of January to middle of February, the markets didn't seem to notice. February 22nd, all of that changed, and the markets plummeted. And so we kind of had a shock to the system with no idea what it actually meant. And... On March 27th, so about a month later, the U.S. government passed the CARES Act, which probably you know stands for the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, uh, which is now at $3 trillion. And that has created a market bottom for now. So I plotted out for you. If you look at March the 23rd, the Dow Jones bottomed, at least for now, at about 18600 and that's the week that the CARES Act was signed into law and created some market stability that drove the Dow Jones back up. I thought it was worth putting $3 trillion into perspective for you so you could get some sense of scale. The starting point is how big was the last economic collapse and how big was our response to that? Well, the 2008 economic insecurity we passed a $700 billion stimulus called TARP. And that was compared to what we just did in 30 days from the onset of a crisis, uh, we've passed 4.3 times the total amount in $3 trillion. And of course, we're not done with the stimulus. I thought it's also worth you know, giving you some sense of scale for how much the U.S. government takes in in revenue every year. Uh, in revenue, the U.S. government takes in 3.5 trillion. So the amount that we've handed out just in money going out of the U.S. government is equal to 86% of the total revenue we take in in a year. And what we see is the amount that's actually being handed out by the government. 
but there's actually a greater amount that's injected into the economy. So the Fed stimulus into the economy is projected by Morgan Stanley. It's sort of hard to calculate, but uh, projected at $8 trillion. So several orders of magnitude bigger than you're probably even aware of. That's 15 times larger than during the Great Recession. And we're just, you know, as I said, kind of 30 to 60 days into this program. So there's 11 trillion of stimulus. And uh, trying to put the impact on the economy, I think most of you know this, but in four weeks, in four weeks, 22 million people have filed for unemployment. Uh, If you look at this graph, it simply plots out how many people filed in the weeks before 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. And you can see very few unemployment uh, filings and in four weeks, 22 million. So let's put 22 million into perspective. First of all, in the last four weeks, more jobs have been lost in our country than exist in total in California or Texas. Uh, So California employs about 17 million people, Texas about 15 million. If you take the 20 smallest states combined, the entire workforce of the 20 smallest states is about 12 million in 20 states. And if you look at the peak of unemployment uh, during the last economic recession, you will notice there were 8.7 million people total unemployed. We're at 22 and counting. The figures come out every Thursday, so we'll know tomorrow the extent to which that goes up. The thing that is, I think, less understood by people is the extent to which demand has completely evaporated and supply, global supply of products that are being produced now greatly exceeds demand. Uh, Anyone who studied economics will know when supply greatly exceeds demand, prices drop. This is an example just of the oil market compared just from April 2019 to April 2020. S&P over that period of time is down 3%, uh, the Standard & Poor's uh, stock index whereas the oil markets are down 66%. That's what happens when demand goes down so precipitously. And don't think this is uh, constrained to oil. This is going to happen for many assets that are overproduced uh, in markets where demand isn't as strong. Many of you may have noticed this past week, actually oil future prices went negative. And that means that people were actually paying you to take oil Uh, If you want to know what happened there, uh, the actual storage facilities are now completely full in the United States. So the ability for people to store oil doesn't exist. So people were paying people to take their futures contracts. So what outlook for VC funding and the kind of backdrop of that economic news? Why is financing hard right now? And I think you probably know, you read the headlines, it's uh, very difficult to get financed. So the market hates uncertainty. They hate when they don't know what the future looks like. When the future is predictable, people like to invest. When it's not predictable, they like to wait and see what happens. And the second thing is the markets generally hate deflation. Deflation is when prices are dropping. That could be prices of real estate. I'll give you an example in your personal life. If you think about buying a house and let's say your price is $500,000 or a million dollars, let's say it's a million dollars, and then three months later, prices in your neighborhood drop to 800000 
and you think, wow, that's a great deal. Maybe we should buy. But you wait 30 days and you notice that prices drop to 720000 and you think, wow, what a great deal. Let's wait 30 days. The more they continue to drop, the more buyers actually pull out of the market because they see deflation. They see asset prices going down and people don't like to buy in a period where asset prices are going down. Obviously, eventually you find market equilibrium and prices stabilize, but investors generally don't like deflation. To give it to you as a startup example, uh, let's say that the markets were paying 10 times trailing multiples for revenue. So a company doing 4 million in trailing ARR, let's say could get a 10x multiple and people would pay $40 million for that. Well, if the market changes how it values companies, the exact same company doing 4 million in revenue, the market may start paying five times trailing. This happens like this in public markets. So public market investors are very used to what's called valuation compression. They see it where SaaS companies might trade at 13 times, 15 times, 17 times trailing, and then one day the whole market resets to seven times. The problem in private markets is private markets don't adjust their pricing uh, because it, it takes time until financings actually happen. So that kind of price discovery makes financing very difficult. The other term you may hear for this is called reversion to the mean, which is where values go up and then values come back down in terms of other values. And nobody actually knows what's going to happen with COVID-19. Uh, I should tell you this week, the CDC warned this week that winter could be worse than today. I don't think by now that'll surprise any of you. I put this chart together in February where people weren't talking about this quite as much, but this is the Spanish flu, mortality rates in the UK. And several markets saw this where they saw uh, an initial wave of mortality. Uh, they sort of thought they were through things as things uh, heated up and then you had a wave that was bigger. And what the CDC in the US is worried about is that the flu, the normal flu, comes out at the same time as COVID-19 makes a resurgence in the winter and that overwhelms our healthcare system. Social distancing, it's now a term that uh, everybody talks about and is widely understood. Again, I put this together in February saying that I thought like chain restaurants, domestic air hotels were gonna be impacted. I think these impacted is too light a word. These uh, industries have been devastated, but there's other factors at work and we were sort of warning startups to expect a degree of uncertainty in the year ahead anyway. Uh, we have the elections coming up this year. In election years, there's always more investor uncertainty about not only who's going to win, but the degree to which the rancor will happen in the country. And, you know, in an election year, other than in a crisis, it's very hard to get bipartisan support for anything. Uh, Deglobalization, I think, is real. Uh, the, the challenges of global supply chains and the, you know, global competition for resources, particularly the U.S.-China, but this is really a trend happening everywhere, you know, Brexit being another example. And I think the other thing on uncertainty that we shouldn't downplay is worldwide populism from the right and left. Now, I usually give people a good book to read, which is um, uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Uh, it talks about how the global economic system was set up under the Genghis Khan regime globally and uh, the building of the Silk Road and why the bubonic plague actually led to a decline of global trade and that led to a decline of global order. 
that led to the Dark Ages, which lasted hundreds of years. And really, it came from the same forces at work from uh, what we see on populism on the left and the right. And I'm not trying to be alarmist, but it is something you know, to be aware of in terms of planning for uncertainty. Uh, when I put my slides together, I said VCs are possibly going to start focusing on triage. They're definitely focusing on triage. Triage means it's a term that comes from war where, you know, you, you have a, an acute thing that happens all at once and you have to decide which patients are going to die and therefore don't warrant the limited resources we have, which patients are fine and we'll get to them later, and which patients, if we step in and make a difference right now, we can save. And that happens in venture capital, and that's happening right now. So every uh, venture capitalist is stress testing his or her own portfolio, and that means they spend less time looking at new stuff. And uh, they're trying to shore up and protect their existing investments. When you get through that period, then people start looking at new stuff. It's much easier to look at bright-eyed and bushy-tailed new investments um, it's much harder to look at companies maybe that were overvalued six, nine, 12 months ago and are trying to raise at lower prices today because investors generally don't like to invest at cheaper prices. They don't want to piss off the existing investors who don't generally like taking markdowns. They don't want to piss off management teams that face dilution from down rounds. And so it becomes easier to fund newer companies. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it becomes easier. In a tougher funding environment, I like to say it becomes a bit like constipation. Nothing gets through. And uh, that's just what happens. Like it's funding, 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 everything's going on. And then all of a sudden, everything shuts down. And it shuts down immediately and almost entirely. So financings are happening. But the pace of financing happening is so low, I think you could say we're generally on pause. Uh, when uncertainty passes, VC funds have plenty of dry capital to put to work. This is the U.S. venture capital market. This is how much money has been raised year by year by U.S. venture capitalists. And you can see they've been raising, we've been raising uh, billions of dollars over the last decade. So your job really is just to stay funded past this period of uncertainty. And it could be, uh, you know, when I call uncertainty, it could be three months of uncertainty. It could be 18 months of uncertainty. I don't think we really know how bad things can be. Um, I don't think we know if we're through the worst. I'd, I'd suggest we probably aren't. You know, I kind of teed up this slide where, you know, revenue in the future might continue on some trajectory where you're up and to the right. But honestly, there might be a quantum where everybody's revenue is brought down. So far in the Q1 reporting in the public markets, Public companies are forecasting uh, that Q2 is going to be down pretty dramatically. And estimates are that full year earnings will be down 15% year over year. So that should give you some indication of what may happen in private markets. I think the VC-backed tech market will likely see its worst moments uh, next year. And I think this is something a lot of people aren't talking about. So I want to make sure you're aware of it before other people are. If you think about what's going on today, uh, you know, you take when people first found out about the news and tried to react in March, right? We're in April now, but in March, they had nine to 18 months cash because that's how much most venture-backed startup companies have. So in Q1 and Q2, this is the period with which this cash is going to be depleted. 
It doesn't mean these companies are yet out of cash, but they're getting pretty close. So I suspect you're going to see increased bankruptcies. And where maybe five years ago or three years ago or three months ago, maybe investors would have stepped in and kind of helped bridge some of these companies. I think there's going to be a lot more uh, ruthless focus on who makes sense to finance and who doesn't make sense. You're going to see a lot more recaps, which are recapitalization, which is refinancing a company and pay to plays. And the reason is if you have four or five large investors and two of them are willing to step up and write a big check in your company, they're not going to do it if three of them aren't. So either that forces the company into bankruptcy, which sometimes happens if two people step up and three people don't, or those investors say, fine, we'll step up, but we want to wipe out investors who aren't stepping up to save a company that otherwise would be bankrupt. Uh, and this is the reality of tough markets. I don't know if we'll get there. I mean, sorry, we're already there, but I don't know if it'll be there en masse or if this is just a small trend. It'll depend how bad the market gets. And you'll see a lot more asset purchases. And what I mean is healthy, mid-sized private companies buying for nearly nothing. Let's say in the past, we'd call them aqua hires. In some cases, they don't even want to aqua hire. They just want asset hire. And I think you'll see a lot more of these in early next year. So what can you expect for SaaS businesses next year? Well, in a booming market, executives are paid to innovate. Executives at companies are told, engage with startups, launch new initiatives, be first to market. You know, why aren't you using RFID? Why aren't you launching collaborative this or that? And you are almost under pressure as a corporate executive to show that you can innovate. But in bearish markets, people are not paid to innovate. They're paid to consolidate and cut costs. So they're going to take nine vendors who kind of all roughly do similar things and say, let's get that down to two. And that means specifically they're going to cancel contracts. And that means they're going to renegotiate prices for tools that they deem essential. So I think most SaaS startups haven't seen the full effects of what you're going to see. The reason for that is most people have annual contracts and they haven't come up for renewal yet. So you might have some companies that are in travel or transportation or hospitality that have literally called you and say, I can't pay my bills. I know that's happened to you. But for the most part, people haven't seen it across their entire customer base. When renewals come up the next 12 months, I think you will see pretty big increases in churn, even for good software companies. But the thing that I would really focus on is price reduction and harder term negotiations because it's coming and you need to have a plan for it now. And intransigence is not a strategy. You saying, well, we're just going to hold the line. That's no strategy. So if you can hold the line because you're essential, obviously, yeah, be my guest. But if holding the line increases your churn, I wonder if you're winning or you're losing. So I've been advising some of our companies when your bigger accounts are asking you for lower prices, can we go in and say, listen, we're willing to lower price in exchange for a longer contract? Can you lock in some degree of more security over the long haul? If you're going to lower your revenue forecast, you know, perhaps you need to be cutting your OPEX aggressively now in anticipation of some of this lost revenue. And I think you should have conversations with your investors early. 
what businesses will resonate with buyers and with investors? What I've been encouraging people to think about is, can you take your existing businesses and slightly alter your value prop or at least change your positioning to the market? So on the one hand, you have cost takeout. So can your product be used to reduce other software expenditure or help clients reduce OPEX costs? In the past, you may talk about productivity gains, but honestly, productivity gains are so last year. You know, it's how do I help drive my bottom line by cutting out costs? And are there any COVID or post-COVID use cases that are relevant for you? So can your product improve operations given the changes in how businesses will operate? That's things like monitoring people or assets remotely, improving how we work in a distributed operation, ensuring compliance with government or with internal policy. You know, you name whatever how the world is changing. And I think it's time to start thinking about how you talk about that with clients. Even if it's soft marketing, this is something that's really gonna resonate with people. Some sectors are obviously well positioned for the future and they will attract capital and customers even in this market. One example is food production and distribution. Uh, We've realized how difficult our food supply chains are and how vital they are. Uh, So anyone who's involved in that sector uh, right now is experiencing more demand than they can handle and probably a lot of inbound investor requests. Uh, Obviously remote training and distance learning will get a lot of heat going forward. Distributed collaboration, anyone who's doing tools that will get teams uh, working in different ways. I mean, the opposite to this is I think a lot of people are looking at canceling their real estate. They've realized, hey, we can work effectively as a distributed team. So you may see teams of 25 or 30 decide they don't want or need offices going forward. You may see bigger companies decide that they're willing to allow more work from home. So biotech and diagnostics is an area that you're seeing a lot of focus on right now. Remote medicine, telemedicine. Right now, if you have a three-month-old, you're not dying to take your baby into a pediatrician. And frankly, the pediatrician's not dying to come into his or her office to treat your three-month-old. So remote medicine is getting a lot more heat. And any application that, as I said, senses things with people, not just temperature, but just the movement of people around spaces is an area that's become vital because we need to ensure social distancing norms are maintained. There's some silver linings. Um, I like to remind people that good businesses are built in good markets and bad markets. Uh, So Google and Salesforce were built in the dot-com crash. Uber and Instagram were built in the last economic crisis. In a way, you have an advantage. If you have an amazing product that truly is differentiated IP that solves real problems, it's much harder for all the posers to raise their poser money and go to market and make it harder for you to charge for your product or service. So as one of my mentors used to say, in a strong market, even turkeys can fly. And when in a down market, you really find out who the great companies are. Also, startup funding has been up massively for the past 15 years. And VC funds, as I pointed out earlier, have raised a ton of capital. So that capital is not going to evaporate. It's going to be invested. Uh, There are more billion-dollar valued private companies now than ever. 
which is a sign that economic value has shifted from public markets to private markets. So part of this is the overfunding of the market, but part of it is just that companies stay private longer and that capital will uh, likely stay in the private markets. The public markets have become more reliant, not less reliant on tech successes in the past decade. Uh, so these are obviously FANG, uh, the major success stories. And a good deal of the economic gain in the public markets over the last decade has been these companies uh, and maybe a handful of others. And uh, I, I don't think that's going away. I don't think uh, investors are going to suddenly say, let's put all of our money in industrials. I think tech will continue to be important. If you look to the dot-com crash, this is no dot-com crash coming our story is much more pervasive now. In 1999, there were 100, internet, 100 million internet users in the US. It's approaching 300 million. There were 250 million in the world. We're approaching now 5 billion out of you know, whatever we're at now, 7.5 billion in the world. Connection speeds in the dot-com era were 50K. You know, it's now 96 meg, right? So um, the ability to transform how we do business is significantly different than it was 20 years ago. Everybody, of course, has a computer in their pocket now. And we're all socially connected. So when ideas work, they spread much faster than they have in human history. And I think one of the things that's often overlooked is that we're all now connected financially. So it's single click to purchase just about anything. And that purchase friction slowed down a lot of online commerce in the past and has accelerated it today. And when we talk about, you know, connections, uh, 5G really will be a game changer. It means on a mobile basis, you'll have the ability to transfer data at incredibly high speeds that will change the way many businesses actually operate and we think will lead to a lot of disruption. One thing that isn't widely understood is that the world is aging and birth rates are declining. And so if you look at this on the left are women that exist in the world, uh, distributed based on age group. And if you look at it in the right, it's men. And this is all high income countries, excluding the United States. The United States is an anomaly in that we have a very young population, and this is why immigration is actually a good thing, not a bad thing, uh, and our president has it completely backwards. But a young population is what creates the tax base to pay for the things that we need. Within an inverted birth rate like this, as you can see, what it means is people are getting older and you'll have fewer people paying into the tax base and fewer people productively working. But I think this is a good story for technology because it's going to drive us to be more reliant on productivity, not less reliant. So I think the narrative of being worried about AI and robots uh, is a bit misguided. So the things we fear, drones, robots, automation, AI, are actually going to be strategic imperatives to feed the world. Mark Andreessen famously wrote this week that we need to build, build more things. And he's exactly right about that. The way to feed the world, the way to secure the world, the way to generate wealth, the way to fight disease, 
they're all driven by the things that the people on this call do, and that's not going to change. So we do have to get through a period of transition. You need to preserve cash during this time. But as startups, we will solve bigger problems in the world. And hopefully, we'll see a lot more people focused on things like agriculture, biotech, remote medicine, remote training, group collaboration, remote education, and the things I talked about. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck in all of your businesses. I'm certainly not rooting against anybody. Uh, I hope my words of caution are more uh, challenging you to be more prudent in your businesses rather than seen as negative. Thank you. Say goodbye to slip-ups. Old news is a thing of the past. With Guru's verification tool, you'll always be confident that your team's knowledge is up-to-date and accurate because it's verified by your in-house experts. Saster listeners can get Guru for free today by visiting getguru.com forward slash Saster.